Let's get on with our letter. (laughs) Reading, beginning with Luke chapter 2. And there were angels living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the town of David... A Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. The concept of Savior is not unfamiliar to the peoples of the world at all. One dictionary defines Savior as one who delivers from danger or destruction. Noted theologian R.C. Sproul wisely observes in his book, The Glory of Christ, that every human being longs for a Savior of some type. We look for something or someone who will solve our problems and ease our pain or Grant the most elusive goal of all, happiness. From our pursuit of success in business to the discovery of a perfect mate or friend, we make our search for a savior. He continues, all men everywhere look for wings of safety to hide under. The religious leaders of the first century searched for a savior as they looked through the Old Testament scriptures for clues to help them find the coming one. The search then continues today all around us. Men search for a savior in such things as politics and wealth and religion and education, knowledge, and and even in power. Men even look within themselves for the one who will bring happiness, safety, and protection from life's storm. It was Augustine who said that within the soul of all men is a basic restlessness, a permanent dissatisfaction with the things of the world, which indicates that we have been created for something more satisfying and something more ennobling than the impoverished temporal objects presented to us by our feeble and earthbound imaginations. Thou hast created us for thyself, he declared, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O God. It is so easy this time of the year to get swept in by the manger scenes and by the singing of Christmas carols and even the reciting of Luke's birth narrative, and thereby failing to see that men are seeking merely the concept of a Savior, but not this Savior sent to earth by God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this that rested in the manger, who spoke of gathering all the souls of Jerusalem beneath his wings, keeping them secure there to eternity with as much ease as a hen gathers her half-dozen chickens under her own wings? Who but he of whom Moses sang, as an eagle stirreth up her nest and fluttereth over her young and spreadeth broad her wings and taketh them and beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did lead him and there was no strange God with him. It was he of whom Boaz said to Ruth, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord. It was the God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to rest, he said. Whom but the person that Christ preached about, or that Peter preached about on the day of Pentecost when he said that God made both Lord and Christ this Jesus you crucified. Whom but the very God manifest in the flesh, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. At this time of the year, people sing and write about him. They pass quietly and reflectively past yards, 
boasting of elaborate manger scenes. They wrap gifts with paper sprinkled with images of the Christ child. But the eternal significance of it all is never known by many because when they peer at the baby, they fail to see his suffering. Born in a stable, his first crib was a feeding trough. And no sooner was he born than the king of the land, Herod, had all the children in the area of Bethlehem killed so that this child, regarded by wise men from the east as the rightful king of the Jews, would not threaten Herod's throne. And therefore, soon after his birth, Jesus had to be taken on a hasty journey to a foreign land of Egypt. Then, when Herod finally died and it was safe for Jesus to return to Palestine, his family resumed residence in Nazareth, a Galilean village regarded as most insignificant. The loss of glory, all this lifestyle involved, was summed up by Jonathan Edwards in this manner. He says, let us consider how great a degree of humiliation the glorious Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, was subject to in all of this, that for about 30 years he should live a private, obscure life among laboring men, and all of this while being overlooked and not taken notice of in the world more than any other common laborer would be. Nor did this entry into public ministry bring any improvement in Jesus' condition. Rather, it brought far greater degradation. He was without a place to lay his head and was so poor that he was able to pay the required tribute only by a miracle. Throughout his ministry, he was reproached as a glutton and a drunkard, a deceiver of people, a madman, a one possessed with a demon, a Samaritan, a devil, and one who practiced the black arts and had communication with the devil. He was a friend of publicans, they said, and a friend of prostitutes and sinners. He was excommunicated from the synagogue and was often threatened with stoning. The Pharisees actively sought to kill him, and even his home folks in Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff. But the greatest humiliation befell Jesus as he delivered, was delivered up to be crucified. One of his own disciples sold him for 30 pieces of silver, the ordinary price for a slave. And as Jesus approached the cross, a dreadful gloom and anguish descended upon his soul as he contemplated the awfulness of being the object of his father's wrath against the sins of the world. Thus, while kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, so great was the anguish of his soul that blood was forced through the pores of his skin. And in the meantime, his disciples had so little regard for his suffering that they actually fell asleep. Then Jesus was arrested, and he was let off, and all of his disciples deserted him and fled. To be sure, Peter turned back and followed him for a distance, having boasted of his willingness to die for him. But he succeeded only in denying him three times with three curses. False witnesses then were brought against him. and He was spat upon, blindfolded, struck in the face, ridiculed, and mockingly dressed in a king's robe and crowned with thorns. Then he was stripped and cruelly beaten, and an insurrectionist was released in preference to the Lord of the universe. And then finally he was crucified, an execution that involved the most terrible agony ever devised. But beyond his physical sufferings, he felt the overwhelming force of God's wrath that would have been ours in hell. He had no sweet frame of mind, like so many martyrs, to help him endure his physical agony. Rather, his most extreme anguish was that God was treating him like a sinner. His father had forsaken him, and he had become his enemy, pouring out the full force of his wrath upon his own son. 
And while Jesus thus endured the wrath of God that his elect would otherwise have experienced for their sins, his thoughts were filled with the dismal gloom of the eternal hell that they deserved. The following quotation sums up Jesus' lifelong suffering as they climaxed upon the cross. I quote, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer, and he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. So we may conclude that Jesus, through all his sufferings, underwent a loss of glory more than sufficient to repair the injury that his people and their sins had inflicted inflicted upon the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards said that no one ever stooped so low as Christ if we consider either the infinite height that he stooped from or the great depth to which he stooped. For sinners, Jesus traversed the unimaginably long distance, being himself the manifest embodiment of the glory of God, to being one who is in the most contemptible state because of the suffering, the full force of the wrath of God brought upon him. Therefore, his loss of glory in his incarnation and death was indeed adequate to atone for the sins of the elect. The night of his birth was indeed a holy night. It was set apart from all other nights in the history of the world because it marked the beginning of suffering. It marked the day Christ, our Savior, was born. And in this time of the year, sometimes I fear it is the most difficult period that we could possibly face with a desire to share the gospel. Because men everywhere are talking about deliverance and a savior and and a child who lay so preciously in the manger. But I think it is incumbent upon us all to take this opportunity to share with people everywhere the Christ, our Savior, that God sent to us that holy night. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And Lord, thank you that as your children, when we peer into that manger, we see more than others see who do not know you. We see death and suffering. But we also see beyond that. Indeed, we see victory and the conquering of sin, the conquering of the devil, the conquering of the flesh, and the conquering of the ultimate enemy, even death. All of that we see in that manger because we have accepted you as our Savior.